Happy New Year. Happy New Year. A new year. A year full of new possibilities. I'm pretty boring when it comes to New Year, actually. A lot of people like to be going out partying. Some of us might be getting a bit leery-eyed this evening, uh, in light of a very late night or early morning uh, this morning. But I, on the other hand, I'm more uh, into organising at the beginning of a new year. I'll very likely go to bed quite early on New Year's Eve, uh, but as soon as I can, I'll start organising for the new year, get out my 2012 diary or wall calendar that my parents would have very kindly bought me for Christmas, and I get far too excited as I start to fill out the dates, uh, what conferences will be coming up that I'm already aware of in the coming year, family holidays, all those private skiing trips that I have to look forward to. I'm joking. But this year is quite special for Melissa and myself, because we're expecting another member of the family. That's something that we haven't had to prepare for in the past. And I know that there are a few of us at Slack across the congregations that are expecting that wonderful blessing in this coming year as well. So that's just added to the New Year preparations. Had to start working out finances for an extra family member and a mouth to feed. Getting the baby kit together, all that, that long list that Melissa knows so well and I have to learn very quickly. And then there are the New Year's resolutions. I will go to the gym three times a week from now on. Yeah. New Year for many of us, I imagine, means new plans, means new preparations. And as we resume our series in John's Gospel this evening, in chapter 13, uh, we witness a new phase in Jesus' ministry. And with that new phase comes that same theme of preparation. Preparation in the light of something new. Uh, before we get into it, let's just remind ourselves of what we've seen so far in John. From chapters 2 to 12, John has been giving us his account of Jesus' public ministry. One that he structures around several, several very powerful and very public signs that Jesus has forms, miracles, each of them pointing to the reality of who he is and why he has come as the Son of God into our world. There was the wedding of Cana, as far back as John 2, where Jesus turns water into wine, that first spectacular sign, showing that he is the promised bridegroom of God's people that we read of in the Old Testament, the one who God had promised to his people, who would bring about that great restoration of new blessing for his people, would make it possible for them to actually have true fellowship with God, despite the barrier of their sin. And the last time that we saw, more recently, just before Christmas in John 11, of Jesus raising his good friend Lazarus back to life after he had been dead for days. Again, revealing that Jesus is now the resurrection and the life. And we must go to him if we are to have hope in life after death. But with Jesus' incredible signs that we've been seeing so far in John's Gospel, there's been a very mixed response on the part of the crowds that have been observing them. Some genuinely believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. I remember John the Baptist at the beginning speaking as when he first sees Jesus walking onto the scene and saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
but there are others who are more self-interested in their response to Jesus, such as the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus creates loaves out of thin air, and yet people only follow him because they have their fill of those loaves, and they want more free food. They completely fail to see the significance of that miracle, that Jesus is now the bread of life to whom we can go for eternal life. And then there were those, sadly, who just rejected Jesus outright, who refused to believe the truth that is right before their eyes. Like the religious leaders who, having witnessed that final sign of Jesus raising Lazarus to new life, decide not to receive the light of the world in Jesus, but rather they plot to extinguish it. They start to put together a wicked plan to put him to death, even though that death would be the very means by which Jesus would accomplish his great mission for which he was sent. He speaks in chapter 12 of how his hour has finally come, the hour in which he would accomplish the very reason for why Jesus came, why the Father sent him, to reconcile us to him in his body on the tree. But now, in chapters 13 to 17, John slows right down. We've covered a few years of Jesus' earthly ministry, but in these following chapters, we're going to be covering maybe about 24 hours. 24 very important hours. As John now takes us from the public sphere of Jesus' ministry into a private meeting between him and his closest disciples. Jesus knows that the hour has arrived, and so he prepares them for that hour. He prepares them for the cross and what lies beyond it. Comes to verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus is now in this private setting with his disciples, and yet even within this intimate gathering of those who were supposedly the closest to him, Jesus still has an enemy, Judas. You read at the end in verse 2, John concludes a little information of how Satan has already started working betrayal in Judas's heart as a result of his own sinful inclinations Judas was now going to be Satan's instrument, Satan's last desperate attempt to destroy Jesus, to put to an end his mission to reconcile the world to himself by having one of his own betrayed him. Of course, Jesus already knew the state of Judas' heart and where it would lead as far back as chapter 6. We've read, Did I not choose you the twelve? Jesus said, Yet one of you is a devil. John tells us he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon of Sarah, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so as Jesus prepares his disciples for the cross in this intimate gathering, Judas is being prepared by another for his role in taking Jesus to that cross. Another indication that Jesus will be leaving his disciples soon. The cross is drawing near. How are they to understand it? How are his disciples to respond to the cross? How are they to live in the light of it? 
both in their response to Jesus and in the way in which they treated one another as his disciples after he had left them. Well now Jesus helps them to understand. He prepares them for that dark hour. He prepares them to understand what does it mean to be a disciple of the crucified Messiah. It's a great teaching for us to sit under as we prepare for a new year as God's people here at Snack 2. So firstly, first lesson we learn in these verses is to trust in the cross. To trust in the cross. Read with me from verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It's really hard for us today to appreciate the incredible humility of Jesus' actions here. Uh, foot washing, which is not that popular as far as I know in Malaysia today, it was the lowest of tasks in Judean culture in the first century. It was so low that even a Jewish slave was not permitted to do it under law. And it's not hard to imagine why. It was a foul, disgusting task. If you think that the, the bin men who come to take away your rubbish each week have a hard task, this one was far worse. The most common form of transport for the men and women of Jesus' day was two legs that God had given them, so they'd be walking around all the time on filthy roads, something like the nice clean tarmac that we have out there. There's little sanitation, even the Roman brick roads, Romans inventing roads, but even those roads would have been filthy. It's agrarian society, animals everywhere. Yeah, well, you can picture it. Imagine your own parents bending down to wash your feet after you have walked from the Genting Highlands all the way into Canal, making a point to stop in every compound along the way, barefoot. And then, as soon as you get through the door that evening, your parents come with a bowl of water and they kneel down and they start to wash your stinking feet. Incredible. Only the lowest Gentile slaves were allowed to wash the feet of the Jew. It was considered a totally unworthy task of even a Jewish slave. The disciples they didn't even think to wash each other's feet. They all lay down for dinner already, and their feet are still filthy. No intention to serve each other in this way. And then their Lord, God Himself. In human form, come to save them and to rule them as his people. This Jesus prepares some water, takes a towel, puts it around his waist as a slave would, kneels down before them and begins to wash their feet. Their sinking, filthy feet. Peter, in his typical outspoken manner, falls back when Jesus brings the fall to his feet and says, Lord, you wash my feet? It's just unthinkable for him. It's so awkward. It's so embarrassing. It's so countercultural. Jesus asked him in verse 7, well, What I am doing now you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. Afterwards you will understand. What Jesus does here for Peter and his disciples 
is something that they will only understand in the light of future events, in the light of the cross. Because that is what Jesus' washing here points forward to. That far greater spiritual cleansing when Jesus as the Son of God and our King would be our servant King by going to the cross and spilling his blood that we might be washing in our sins as his people. But up to this point, Peter couldn't accept that kind of Messiah. So he remains the finals. Verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. I doubt he was ready for his master's response. He probably thought, I'm doing Jesus a favour here. He can't wash my feet. I'm going to save him some face. No, no, Jesus, don't do it. And then Jesus explains to Peter what's really at stake here. If he doesn't let him wash his feet, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Friends, you can come to Slack every week, and I encourage you to do that. You can involve yourself in all of the church activities that we put on throughout this next year, and I encourage you to do that. You can belong to a growth group or go to the men's nights or the women's nights. You can come on Slackago 2012, and I encourage you to do all those things. You can bear all of the external marks of being a member of this church family a member of God's people, together. But friends, if, like Peter here, you refuse to receive Jesus as the one who would cleanse you completely of your sins, if you refuse to let him serve you before you even seek to serve him, then you are not a Christian. You cannot be a member of God's people. Please don't get me wrong, if you're not a Christian here tonight, we are delighted that you have chosen to spend your New Year's Day evening with us, you are most of But Jesus' words here stand as a warning that in order to truly follow him, we must allow him to serve us entirely, first of all. Friends, when it comes to your right standing before God, when it comes to your confidence as being a member of God's people, as being a brother and sister here at Slack, please don't make the terrible mistake of relying on your own efforts this year, or your own goodness this year, or your charity this year, or anything that you achieve this year to give you confidence that you belong here, to give you confidence that you are truly a member of God's people. Don't buy into the false humility that says, oh, I, I couldn't possibly rely entirely on Jesus to serve and save me, to give me the status of being one of his holy people. I remember my friend Nick from university. We used to have good conversations uh, after lectures, had lots of opportunities to share the gospel of grace with him, how we are declared righteous before God on the basis of what Christ has done by cleansing our sins of the cross. And yet, every time I prompted him to put his trust in Jesus, just rely on Jesus to be clean. You can't do it yourself. Every time he said, oh no, I can't rely on Jesus. I couldn't let him go through all of that for me. I want to pay for my own sins. And it sounded so humble at first. Couldn't possibly let Jesus go to the cross for me. 
and yet it's a false humility. He remained in his sinful lifestyle, rejecting Christ as his Saviour and Lord. It looked humble, but it was proud. Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. We have no share with Christ. We have no true share or relationship with his people. My friend, if you know that you need Jesus to wash you, if you are yet to let him cleanse you of your sins by putting your trust entirely in him as your saviour and your Lord, please do so, because it's the only way you can truly be clean. Well, Peter, having received this warning from Jesus, goes completely to the upper extreme. We read in verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. I really like what Jesus says here about the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. This verse took, a new, uh, took on a new significance for me when I started seeing uh, Melissa, who is now my wife, and I started going over to her parents' place for dinner. You see, back in the UK, uh, when we walk around, we'll usually wear trainers and socks with it being a colder climate, uh, and normally, when you arrive at someone's house, you'll take off your shoes, but you'll keep your socks on and they're happy to let you walk around their lounge, that kind of thing. But in Malaysia, of course, it's a bit different. We live in a place of great humility, we sweat a lot more. So, when I started going over to uh, my aunties and uncles, now my, um, uh, my mum and dad's place, um, as soon as I got in the door, having taken my shoes off, mum would be preparing food in the kitchen, and she would shout through, Tim, take off your socks, wash your feet. It's very easy. Take off your socks, wash your feet. Now, she never said when I arrived for dinner, Tim, go and take a shower, because my hygiene wasn't that bad back then. Really good, right? But she did insist on me just washing my feet, because those were the, that was the really stinky part, and she didn't want me touching her nice, clean living room floor that she'd been mopping and mopping for hours, only for me to come and put my sweat all over it. Tim, wash your feet. So I'd make a quick beeline for the shower before all of that nasty sweat got onto her lovely clean living room floor. Just the feet, just my feet that needed to be washed. I was otherwise clean, thankfully having showered that morning, most days. Well, Jesus tells Peter here that as he allows him to serve Peter, to cleanse him, the result is he is completely clean. And he's using this physical exercise of washing Peter's feet to point to that greater spiritual reality of the cross. Peter doesn't need to do anything else beyond relying on Jesus and the way in which he serves him in order to truly be clean before God. To be pure and acceptable in his sight. He doesn't need to have his face or his hands washed. He doesn't need any special treatment. He doesn't need anything more than what the other disciples receive by depending on Jesus. Once he's once he has relied on his Saviour and his Lord, he is clean. But having been made spiritually clean by Jesus, we as his people do get dirty again, don't we? 
feel like being out to showering in the morning. I still have dirty feet that I need to wash in the evening before I can go into my Lord's dinner. And we still battle with, and sadly often give into what will make us spiritually unclean. Our sin. Those are our relationship with God. And we can and we should be resisting the temptation to sin at every opportunity. And instead of inviting Christ and the freedom that he has now granted to us by the power of his spirit to live in obedience to him. But when we don't, when we, as it were, dirty our feet as Christians, we must always, always, always remember that Christ's death once for all at that cross, what this foot washing points us forward to, is fully sufficient to cover every sin. The cross is not only a necessity to be a Christian, it is entirely sufficient for us to be truly a member of God's people. We don't go looking for another way to be clean. We don't start relying on our works or on a church ritual that claims to be able to recreate the sacrifice of Christ or anything else that we do. When we dirty our feet in sin, there is one right response. We confess it. And we depend again in that one cleansing death that Jesus died at the cross for us. So how should we trust in the cross as God's people in this coming year, well, by realizing our complete dependence on Jesus to be washed in of our sin, accepting the absolute necessity of the cross to live the Christian life, and then continually returning to that cross when we are guilty of sin, accepting the absolute sufficiency of the cross that we would never depart from God's grace. Well, that is the only thing that can truly make this clean. Well, Jesus, having spoken to his disciples about how they must let him serve them, now goes on to speak about how they are to respond to the cross in their behaviour to one another, in their service to one another. Verse 12, to live out the cross. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the hour of his death, for the cruel cross, but he's also preparing them for life after the cross. How are they to live as disciples of the crucified Christ. It's a very different kind of Messiah from the one they had in mind at that time. Certainly weren't thinking of a Messiah that would bow down and wash their feet, let alone one that would die for them. So Jesus has to get to work changing their mindset. He starts by reminding them of his status in relation to them. That he is their teacher and their Lord. That's why they've been calling him all this time, Rabbi, Rabbi. In John's Gospel, teacher. Well, if Jesus indeed is their Lord, and yet he is willing to serve his subjects in such a humiliating way, he expects them to take it to their logical conclusion that they, subjects, should serve one another 
as he has served them. In washing their feet, Jesus has given them an incredibly powerful example of humble service. It is an example. One question often, often pops up when people are looking at this verse is, what is the place of foot washing in particular in the church today? There are those who would want to actually institute it as a third sacrament. Here at SMAC, we believe in two sacraments under the authority of Scripture, baptism and the Lord's Supper, two practices that Jesus and his apostles have taught us as his church to observe regularly. Baptism, Lord's Supper. But others have read verse 15, have a look at it again. Verse 15, he says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. They take that command very literally. All churches everywhere should do just as Jesus has done here in this foot washing. Everyone who comes to the door must have their feet washed by another in the church service. Now, there's nothing wrong with washing one another's feet. It's a very strong example of godly humility and submission, particularly in Middle Eastern cultures. See what Paul says about godly widows in 1 Timothy. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 9, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, if she has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted. As far as Paul is concerned, it's a godly way to express genuine Christian hospitality in that day. But unlike the Lord's Supper, and unlike baptism, the apostles after Jesus, Paul and the others, they never teach the church to regularly observe the practice of foot washing as part of their regular church gathering. And you know, I sadly suspect that if foot washing was actually made a regular practice in the church, it would just as likely limit our loving service to one another rather than promote it. Because as we wash each other's feet each Sunday, we might be tempted to think that, well now that I've washed my brothers or my sisters' feet, I love them to the extent that Jesus wants me to. I've served them to the extent that Jesus wants me to, simply by that physical act of washing each other's feet. Now what Jesus really wants us to do is to adopt the attitude that is at the heart of this demonstration in our hearts of humble service for one another. And he uses this incredibly humble task of foot washing as a strong example here to encourage his disciples to love and serve one another as he will do when he goes to the cross for them. As we must do as we reflect on the cross where our Lord and Saviour died. I must say, I'm actually really encouraged by the ways in which I see this attitude of Christ-like love and service to one another here at SMAC 2 over the past year. People who have come early to help set up the library at the back and to welcome, set up the Bibles to welcome people, especially newcomers, make them feel a part of the service. Those who have prepared the PowerPoints, who have set up the sounds. Those who have given lists to others that they can be a part of our church gathering each week. Those who will be staying behind afterwards to actually pack away. 
even us regularly committing to meeting together as brothers and sisters at Smack 2 each week is, shows our concern to be serving one another in love as we encourage one another in our faithfulness to Christ. And friends, as we enter this new year, let me encourage you, please keep on looking for those opportunities. Don't have to wait to be asked to serve others. If you see an opportunity, grab hold of it. Because that, as far as Jesus is concerned, is a mark of genuine discipleship. If we love Christ, we will love and serve one another in the way that he has loved and served us. For Jesus, he zeroes in on one specific way in which we are to serve others as his disciples. Look at verse 16. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So far he's been using that illustration of lord or teacher and servant, but now he changes it to messenger and the one who sends the messenger, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. As Christians, we have a master who has sent us into this world and brought us to faith in Christ for a chief purpose, for an important mission, to be his messengers, to delight and make the most opportunities to share the good news of Christ with others, because that is the way that God has chosen to make the gospel spread and grow, and to grow his kingdom in this present age. From the first century all the way through to where we live now, any believer who is a believer became a believer because God, by his grace and in the power of his spirit, brought the gospel to their ears and to their hearts as one of his chosen servants, one of his people, Share the good news of Christ with them. So Jesus says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. How do people come to know God as their heavenly Father? The Father who sent Jesus into the world to reconcile humanity to himself, despite our sin. For by receiving Jesus as their Saviour and Lord, depending on his work at the cross for them, as they hear that good news from our lips, there's no greater way for us to serve our son and fellow man this coming year than to make the most of the opportunities we have to share the good news of Christ. And as we do that, we will be shown to be true disciples of our Lord Jesus, not just talking the talk, Walking the walk as well. That's what Jesus says in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. We begin this new year in 2012. Is our concern to be faithful witnesses to the gospel under our Lord Jesus? Is that weighing heavily on our hearts? Does that have a lot of attention in our planning? Or maybe we need to be less consumed with planning our work or our social activities on our calendars and more concerned with taking note of the great opportunities that we're going to have to share the gospel with others. When the guest nights are announced this year, when we announce those dates months earlier so that we all have the opportunity to share 
and invite our friends to those events, are we going to look it down? Is that going to be a priority for us? So that not only we can share the gospel with them, but we can bring them to a place where they will hear the gospel taught and meet others who are also considering faith in Christ. Do you make a point of putting those dates in? Showing your discipleship in that way. Paul encourages the church in Colossians 4 verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Make the best use of the time. Paul says be wise with those opportunities to prepare, to plan, that we might make the most of them. And Jesus says, if you do these things, blessed are you if you do them. How we live out the cross as God's people this coming year, or by adopting the attitude of Jesus that we see at the heart of the cross, by lovingly serving one another as he has served us. And by fulfilling our chief mission as Christians, that others might hear the gospel by which we have been saved. The message of the cross. So Jesus has served his disciples, he's washed their feet, and he's promoted them in treating each other with the same loving humility. And yet, throughout that evening, he has also been making a painful distinction. I wonder if you noticed it. Twice so far in our verses, he's alluded to the fact that the washing that he performs and the work of the cross that he points forward to and the words that he is speaking here do not apply to all of them. Verse 10, have a look back. After responding to Peter, the fact that he is clean, he says to all of them, the you is plural there, and you are clean of not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he says, not all of you are clean. Judas has been this, lying down around the dinner table with them all that time. But as we've seen already, his heart is in a very different place. And Jesus now brings his wicked plan of betrayal into the limelight, this plan of Jesus. Verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen. For the scripture will be fulfilled, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is quoting from one of the Psalms, Psalm 41, written by David, king of Israel, a thousand years before Jesus. So we had in our Old Testament reading. And in this psalm, King David is crying out for deliverance because he has sinned in some way and even his own closest friends are seeking to put him to death, are plotting to kill him. Let me remind you, look at verse 8 and 9 on the screen of that psalm. They say, David writes, they say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Well, that was true of an episode in David's life, and yet the, the real significance of this psalm here is about to be fulfilled in this episode, in John 13 and what it points forward to. Judas, who to this point has been considered one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, a close friend, one who will share his bread, will ultimately betray him. 
And that betrayal will be an essential step for Jesus in going to the cross to complete his mission. But it will also come as a huge discouragement to the other 11 disciples. Witnessing, finding out that Judas, one of their group, betrayed their Saviour and Lord. One whom Jesus himself had chosen as the Messiah, as God made man, chosen to himself. How could Jesus have been so foolish in my thing? To allow this traitor into his midst that he knew about and then in the end be killed as a result of this traitor's betrayal. How could he really be the Messiah? He was really that foolish and unwise they might think. And you see how Psalm 41 continues. Verse 10 of that psalm, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me, my enemy will not shout in triumph over me. And Jesus knew that three days after the cross, he would be raised up by his heavenly Father in glory and victory, having paid the price for our sins at the tree. His enemies, Satan, Judas and the rest would not be able to shout triumph over him. And when the disciples witness Judas' betrayal and they're discouraged, and when they see how that betrayal leads to the cross, and when they see how the cross leads to the resurrection, when they see this psalm fulfilled before their eyes, Jesus wants them to remember his words to them again around this dinner. Verse 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. When they realize that Jesus was fully aware of Judas' betrayal, and he knew of his necessity in God's plans all along, that this was just part of the plan. Rather than being so discouraged that one of their own had betrayed him, they would have even more reason to believe that he is the Messiah. He is, I am. As it said in verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. And that's where the group stops. It's just I am. It's a personal name for Yahweh. The God of Israel who promised this great restoration. God Himself comes to save and rule His people. Well, even Judas' betrayal will act as a sign pointing them to Jesus as the one in whom that promise will be fulfilled. He is my hand. He is the Messiah that they have longed for. Yet despite all that, despite the fact that Jesus knew that Judas' betrayal was all according to the plan, he isn't attached emotionally. He isn't unaffected by what Judas is about to do. Verse 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He is in great anguish as he says those words. As he speaks for the first time blatantly of what is going to happen to him at the hands of one whom he had welcomed to himself initially. 
And yet despite his sorrow, we've seen he uses this painful situation to show to his disciples how he is in complete control. They can't believe what he's saying. They just don't understand. They, they're looking at each other awkwardly. Jesus is going to be betrayed one of us. Simon Peter, for once in a more discreet manner, sends a subtle message across the room. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to Jesus. He was literally lying down next to Jesus. At these special meals, the Jews would actually lie around the table. So that all their heads were facing in around the table. So they'd form a circle like that. So John was literally lying next to Jesus, and Jesus was here. So he just has to roll over to speak to Jesus quietly. And the Greek says literally, John leaned against Jesus' bosom. He leaned against his breast. He leaned on his chest. And he asks him this pertinent question that they all want to know the answer to. Lord, who is it? Who is it? John shows us again that Jesus is in complete control. Jesus says, verse 26, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Jesus, the son of Simon Scarlet, the one he had known would betray him all along. He shows this one last act of compassion to him. He serves him this morsel of bread and dipped it in the wine, having already washed his feet. Judas wasn't excluded from that. Jesus had kneeled before not only his unworthy disciples, but the one who betrayed him and washed his singing feet in his love. Well, Judas accepts that morsel of bread, but he doesn't accept the love with which it is given. And instead, in that very moment that he takes the bread, he accepts someone else as well. It's not Jesus. Verse 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. <coughs> Judas has now decided and given himself entirely over to Satan's will. Most probably, at this point now, he is possessed. He, there is no turning back for him. And the disciples don't understand why Judas is getting up. He's leaving the dinner so early. As the disciple who carried the money bag, maybe he is going to get supplies for the Passover celebration. Or maybe he's going to go and give a, a customary tribute to the poor, as was the custom at the Passover time in Jesus' day. Even John, having just been told by Jesus what Judas was going to go and do, can only sit there the world in silence. He knew Judas was the traitor, but he couldn't understand why Jesus would promote him in what he's about to do. Go do it quickly. So Judas, having rejected the light of the world in Christ, goes out immediately into the darkness. We read verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. John is at pains to tell us, and it was not. We finish on this low note. And yet there is a great encouragement for us as Christians as we see the way Jesus 
deals with Judas here in these dark verses. He is in complete control of the great wickedness that is about to befall him. He knows about it. He allows it. He even uses it for the sake of those whom he loves. Telling his disciples of what Judas would do before he had gone to do it. That they might further believe in him. That he was truly the Messiah. Friends, I don't know what this next year holds for you. But for some of us it might be a very hard year. Where we will face very trying times, possibly as a church or individually, because of our faith in Christ. We live in a world that hates Jesus and has turned against him. And so that world will hate us as his followers who love him at times. Paul would later warn the church that those who wish to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, not might, will be persecuted. Be encouraged when those persecutions come at the hands of wicked men, when that boss at work makes your life hard because he knows you're a Christian, when even your own family members make your life difficult because they can't understand your love for Christ. Be encouraged that God is aware. He knows about that situation that's causing you such pain. Not only that, but he's going through his hands. He's in control, ultimately. Just as Jesus was with Judas as he faced his own betrayer here. As he faced the evil that was about to fall him. He is the God who can and does use the wickedness of evil men to achieve his good purposes for the sake of his people. Through Judas' betrayal, Christ would go to the cross that we might be his people, that we might be cleansed of our sins and welcomed back into his kingdom and have the promise of eternal life. So friends, when you're mocked, when you're abused, or humiliated, when you suffer for your faith in Christ against a world that wants nothing to do with him or his people, and when that suffering starts to shake your confidence, in the coming year, can I encourage you to stand by the cross? Remember the events of the cross that we see here? How God used the greatest evil in his good purposes to bring about the promise of eternal life for us as people. So stand by the cross in those hard times. Trust your Lord in every circumstance, knowing that you are ultimately saved in his hands. He used the greatest evil to bring about the greatest good. And so in all of those smaller trials and sufferings, he promised us, he promises us as his people to do the same. To be at work in every hard and difficult and painful and wicked situation. To bring about his good purposes for the sake of those whom he loves. I, I hope this new year is a great year for all of us, as we persevere in our love, our knowledge, and our obedience, and our joy in Christ together as a church. But as we start it, let's resolve to get our priorities straight as God's people. To continue trusting in the cross for our salvation and that alone. To continue living out the cross in the way in which we treat one another, serving one another, in the way that Christ has served us, serving others with that gospel in mind. 
and finally standing by the cross, no matter what we face, knowing that God has us in his hands, and he will bring all things to good in the end. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, in your grace, in your mercy, and by your spirit, have allowed us to be that invisible guest at this meal between Jesus and his disciples. And through it, you help us to understand what it means to be disciples of the crucified and risen Christ. Help us, Lord in the midst of sin, to ever depend on the cross, and that alone, to be clean, to know that we are right before you, and to live under your grace as your people. And in response to that great mercy, help us to be serving one another in love. We know we are so slow to do that sometimes. Please, Lord, promote us by your grace in serving one another in the way in which you and your Son have served us. And help us to stand by the cross when our faith is shaken by the circumstances and situations that you put us through. Help us to remember you have a good purpose in them, that you are in complete control, that we can trust you always as our Heavenly Father. So help us, Lord, to persevere in these things in this coming year. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.